Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Faith in Your Recovery. Are you tired of the fight? Fed up with the struggle? Done lying to yourself about that next time. Hold on. We don't believe you've come this far to only come this far. And we believe we have a part of the answer. We're just glad you're with us. Listen to what we have to say. Give it a practice. Give it a try. Step on up to your best game. We believe in your recovery. If you ever want to get a hold of us, shoot us an email, podcast at ablbh.org. Hi, Randy Davis. We're glad you're with us. Our guest today, Greg Snelling. Welcome, Greg. Hi. Hey, good to have you with us. Look forward to what you have to share. Let's go ahead and just jump right on it. Tell us where you are in life right now, Greg. You know, what it's about, what you're doing. We'll talk about your recovery right after that. Uh, where I'm at right now in life is, it's it's amazing. You know, I would not expect, you know, two years ago, if you would have asked me, were you, would you be where I'm at today? Uh, no. I was a person that would always, you know, I'm not ever going to quit using, I'll die using. I was that type. And now coming into a big old eye opener, going into a program, finding the Lord and having a 360 degree change in my life. It's, it's amazing. You know, I'm, I'm getting promotions at work. I've, I've never had a promotion at work. You know, my boss came up and said, Hey, we're promoting you. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to promote your story today. Okay. And you along with it. And thanks for your willingness to come and share. We just want you to be raw, to be real, to be transparent. We believe somebody out there is going to connect in a way they won't connect with any other story. Don't want to put the extra pressure on, but here we are. We're just glad you're along with us. So awesome. thank you again. Tell us about early in life. What was it like, Greg, your growing up years? Uh, growing up was, I don't know, it, it was up and down. Um, I was in what they call, you know, like your lower class people, you know, we didn't have a lot. Uh, my mom was a single mom. Um, she did her best that she could raising two uh, boys on her own. Basically. Uh, I lost my dad at the age of three. Um, how'd you lose him? Uh, he died in a car accident on his way to Tennessee, uh, drinking and driving. He fell asleep behind the wheel, slammed into a broke down van that was parked on the side. And he uh, got 98% of his body was third and fourth degree burns. He lived for four days, four or five days after that. And, uh, yeah, so. That's tough. That's it, tough. Yeah. And obviously you weren't old enough to understand, but as the years went on, I'm sure you did. Oh, yeah. And internalizing and dealing with it had to be a special challenge. Yeah, that was that was a really hard battle once I hit my early teens. 
Yeah, okay, go ahead and take us up to those early teens. So your mom raised you and your brother. Is that an older or a younger brother? Uh, he's older. By how much? A year. A year older, okay. Your mom was raising the two of you, doing the best she could do with all yep. of that. Difficult experience that would be. How how did things go during that time, before you reached those teenage years? A little rocky. You know, we uh, we bounced around from place to place. Uh, I was bullied real bad in school because, you know, I would I didn't fit in with anybody. I was socially awkward. I, you know, I couldn't really talk to anybody because I would just, I, I was socially awkward. You know what I mean? I just, I couldn't, I couldn't talk properly because just associating myself with people was just like, it, it was weird to me. So connecting with people and becoming friends with people was extremely hard. And the other students, they were seen that and they targeted it. So growing up through those periods of time was, was pretty rough. You know, it, it was. You were one of the weak ones in the herd by their vision. Yes. And because of that, they jumped on you. Yes. Somewhat a bullying of the type, if not directly so. Is that accurate? I don't want to yeah, put no, in no, your mouth. Yeah, no, no, that's that's 100% accurate. I was, I was your poster child, perfect picture of a kid being bullied. You were a target. Yep. Yeah, okay. So you get through those years. How did you deal with that as you went into your teenage years? Well, Going into my teenage years, I started, uh, like, I don't know, I would dabble with alcohol, dabble with pills. So that would make me more sociable with people. And then they would, like, the kids that would bully me, some of them started to back off. And I developed a temper. And then I realized I knew how to fight. So then that, that helped with them bullying me. They started back off more. Then I got in with the wrong crowd, and drugs became a real heavy part of my life. So that at that point, it was I was able to really fit in anywhere. Okay, there at same what? That's somewhere around that 13, 14-year-old age yeah, four, area. Yeah, 14 is when I kind of flipped the switch. Or the most negative, yes? Yes. Yeah. yeah, okay. So guide us through that. In your uh, in your bio, you said something about a missions trip. Tell us about that and how that played into your life. Uh, it, w- it actually uh, helped keep me, like, planted and uh, not, keep, not allowing me to go completely off the deep end. Um, I was in a youth group called uh, Olive Branch Church of God. And they had a, it's out, say Roanoke, out towards that area, I think. Um, and they had a youth group there. And I had went uh, with them to uh, Mississippi down when uh, Katrina hit. It was a year after Katrina hit. We went down there for a week. So, like, being part of that uh, kind of helped me stay footed and planted for a little while longer. It didn't change your life, but certainly empowered you for the moment. Yes, yeah, and gave you a positive outlet. And, a, you know, you I'm going to guess you were well accepted in that group. Yes, you absolutely. You felt like a part of that group. Absolutely. You didn't, you could be yourself. Absolutely, 100%. How strong that is and how awesome, okay, with all of that. So then you started to uh, 
you mentioned how you got into pills after the alcohol to cover yep. the pain of of the loss of your dad, the pain of being bullied, the pain of the awkwardness. Is that yep. is that yep. accurate? Yep, that's that's correct. Okay, okay. So from there you moved forward and you became a uh, you know you went from the alcohol and the pills to harder drugs. Tell us about that. Um, so I would say probably about the age of 17, I was introduced to, uh, methamphetamines and it was one of those love at first sight moments, you know, cause like the, the pot and the alcohol and the pills, they would dial down the pain, but the meth would numb it a hundred percent. And when you're at 17, you don't realize that this drug that's, you know, amazing, it's numbing, it allows you to be able to not really care about much of anything. You don't see it then, but it's setting you up for a life full of nothing but heartbreak after heartbreak, after failure, after just, you know, you could move 10 steps forward but being on meth, it'll take you a hundred steps backwards. That makes sense. I'm going to guess like most of us at 17, we're worried about the next moment, not the next day. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you were. And <laughs> yeah. So you found a way to get through those moments that took you into that numbness instead of that dialing down the pain. You didn't have any pain. You didn't have any negative because there was nothing there, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I know you had a difficult time there when you were first into those pills just prior to that 17-year-old age where you, your personal struggles took you to yeah. dark place. Very dark places. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to share that? Uh, yeah. Um, this will actually be the first time. Oh, hold on. That's all right. You know, and if you don't think you can... Don't do it. But if no, because people need to hear it. Thank you. Um, this will be the first time that I've ever shared this with anybody. Like, my own mother don't even know this. Um, at the age of 15, I had hit a very dark spot, and I became, like, extremely suicidal. Uh, I had tried to cut my wrists at... Um, this, uh, oh, it was a uh, builder's trades at my school. And my three experiences I had with suicide, uh, every one of them, I feel like God had stepped in because when I went to try to cut my wrists and I wasn't going across the road, I was doing it proper. I was going down it. I was trying to cut from, yes all the way down because they can't sew it up if you go up. So I was trying to just be done with it. Every time I went to apply pressure to do it, my hands couldn't go any further. Like I was able to cut through my sweatshirt and that was it. I wasn't able to do no kind of harm towards my arms. Um, the second time I was 16, and my mom was currently uh, married at the time, and her husband was taking a bunch of these painkillers because for his back. 
Well, I had gotten into his medicine cabinet that morning and I took out 13 uh, Percocet tins and, uh, yeah, sorry, 10 Percocet tins and three uh, Flexrol. And at the bus stop, I ate them all. And the last thing I remember was when I was at school, I had to get up to go get a drink. I was seeing hallucinations and I went to my fourth period class, which wasn't until two o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, the next thing I know, I was waking up in the nurse's station and I don't remember how I got there or nothing. Um, they had called my mom. Um, I was falling in and out. They were borderline getting ready to call, uh, the 911 to bring out namely it's, um, and there's, there's like only one, there's only one thing that could have saved me out of that. And that was God, because at the age of 16, somebody that dabbles with pills, but isn't into them that hard should not have survived through taking 10 Percocet tens. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that pain you felt and the darkness that you saw yourself in at that time. At that time, I felt like it was better just to not be there than to be there at all. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, obviously, that that wasn't easy to share, but we, I believe just as you do, somebody needed to hear that. Absolutely, because there is a way out. There, there is. is. Yeah. And you've already alluded to that, and you just continue to share that and, you know, provide that hope and that godly help. So you got through that that time in your life, uh, the pills, the, the knife, those efforts. You got into meth, and that became the ultimate for a while. How long did you do meth? Um, let's see, I'm... 33 now let's take 18 months off of 33 and so from 17 to 31 32 31 14 15 years thereabouts yep if i do the math so yep yep, that sounds about right and that was meth yep did it ever progress on the heroin or cocaine or um i've I've done cocaine uh i didn't like it because i messed my nose up and just, I didn't like it. Um, I've done probably just about every drug there is out there. Uh, but I had gotten into heroin. Um, I never shot it. I was too scared to, but, uh, that's how I did my meth. I would, I would shoot it up. Um, I had started getting into heroin and I'm a little over two years clean off of heroin. Uh, last time I'd done it, I had uh, overdosed, and I woke up to a friend of mine standing over top of me, six Narcan uh, containers empty beside me, and she's got her phone in her hand getting ready to call 911. Uh, it's, a, it's a miracle that I made it out of that alive. How many moments like that did you have, do you think, Greg, to where it could have easily been your last breath? Too many. Too many. Brady. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> I've already heard of three or four right here, okay, and I'm sure there are others. And you alluded different, or you alluded later on here that uh, there were at least four times that you were brought back to life. Yep. I'm going to assume that's during an overdose time or at least yep. certainly a 
a blackout time, depending on what the drug was at the moment. How did you feel about Greg at that time? Did you care? Did life matter at all? Uh, to be yes. to be a hundred percent transparent, no, life didn't uh, life didn't matter. It held nothing for you. It hadn't no. given you anything positive so far. Was I'm, that? I mean, it had, but I was so far into my addiction at that point. Okay, that you couldn't see it if it was no, handed to. I couldn't, unless it was in a needle or a pill. You weren't going to see anything. Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay, and that went on for how long? Uh, the darkest part of your journey. I would say that that went on for a, probably about eight years. Eight years, eight years. That was just... Eight of that 14 or so years there. Did you have anybody in your corner, anybody you could talk to about this that would influence you in a positive way? Yeah, but I was just, I was too ashamed to talk about it. Like, I was so far in my addiction, I knew I should stop, and I knew I had to stop. But on the same flip side, I didn't want to stop because that means I had to face everything from my past, all my emotions, everything that I've pushed down. You know, the, the death of my father, I'm at 33, and I still haven't dealt with that 100%. You won't ever. Probably I not. Hope you know that. <laughs> Probably that's, not. That's okay. You deal with it as far as you can. I was 23 when my mom took her own life. I'm at 72 now. I'm still dealing with that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. But that was her choice. I did get that far in the matter. So allow yourself some space to hurt and. Maybe to never completely heal. Uh, if you can recover, that's the thing. If you can take charge of your life, just like with the drug. Uh, it was there and it had you, but obviously you moved forward. So let's go back to that, to that high school. You're graduating high school. What's life looking like at that time? At that time, it was, I mean... From the time I did meth for the first time at 17 up until now, there was its good times, you know what I mean? It wasn't all bad and this and that. After high school, um, I had graduated. Uh, I was uh, engaged to my high school sweetheart. Um, She was pregnant. We ended up getting married. And then, I don't know, I just turned on the stupid switch, I guess, um, ended up catching some felony charges, uh, just about killed a man and, uh, went on basically what the judge said was a crime spree, but he didn't want to charge me with a crime spree because then that would give me less time. So he ran every charge I got separate and I ended up going to prison for two years and eight months. I did eight months of it in county and then two years in prison. And that was from uh, the age of 19 to 22. Did you still have a family when you came out? No. No. Nope. Nope. She had uh, left me and when I about seven months into me being in county, 
She uh, came with divorce papers and paternity tests. So, yeah, so that was the end of that relationship. So that was more to deal with at that time even. Yeah, yeah, because I had to deal with that sober because I was locked up and couldn't really escape it. Yes, yes, okay, okay. So let's go through that prison time. You're there in your, like, mid-20s. Uh, you get out. What was the next step for you after you got out? Um, I got out. My mom came pick me up. Um, I, like I said, I was 22 at this age or at this point in time, so I was fairly young. Uh, I moved in with my mom, and she got me a job at a place called Inyard's True Value, which is there in Rochester. Uh, great job. Great people in there. Uh, I, I hold nothing against them because... I mean, I understand why they did what they had to do. So I was at that, uh, it was probably a 30 days to maybe a month and a half after being out that I started manufacturing methamphetamines. And it just, it was a 110% downward spiral from there. So you went from using to making. Yep. Okay. Where did that take you? Wow, uh, took on a roller coaster ride right there. Um, if I thought I was bad before that, once I started being able to manufacture for cheap, I just spiraled all the way out of control, ended up losing my job, um, got evicted out of my apartment was up for two, three weeks at a time. No, no stopping, no nothing. Um, Were you into selling at that time, dealing or just using your own? I was doing all of it. You were doing all yeah. of it. Was, how, how did that catch up with you? Uh, what happened? Well, the only, like, it really didn't. I kind of got lucky. Okay. Because it really didn't catch up with me. Like, Not in the sense of by the law. The, the only thing that the law caught on to me on is I had went up to Warsaw and I would got pulled over. And then they ended up finding some of the, uh, the meth that I had on me, which that, st- that ended my wild out moments. I ended up getting arrested and going to jail. Um, I did nine months in Warsaw and was released out to a place called the Serenity House there in Warsaw. Tell us about your time in the Serenity House. It was a, it was a good, it was a kind of good program. Uh, I ain't going to say his name, but the individual that was running it, he was trying to run it like a, basically like a boot camp. He was, he was very strict. Uh, I was looking at if I didn't complete the program, going back to prison for eight years. So there really, in my mind, there really wasn't no option other than to complete the program. But I wasn't there to get sober. I was there to stay out of jail. You were there to complete the program, yep. to stay out of jail. Yep, that's Not, that's all I was there for. Not, you weren't there by choice. You weren't truly working the program. You were nope. getting through it. Yep. I was telling him what he wanted to hear, doing what he wanted me to do, and just 
the bare minimum until I was able to leave. And that obviously worked. You got through the program, yes? Yep. Okay. So were you released of all charges, so to speak, then or time? No, I was still on probation. Um, I had, uh, once I got released out of the Serenity House and completed the program, I was still on probation through Rochester for another, oh boy, uh, another seven years. Because the plea agreement that I had signed back in 2010 was for 10-year uh, probation period on top of the prison time I got. And uh, from the violations and the, uh, yeah, from all the violations from catching charges and just doing dumb crap, and they, they had kept on extending my probation a year here, a year here, a year here. So my 10-year probation period... By the time they unsuccessfully completed me off of probation, uh, I was at like, had I completed the probation, I would have been on it for like 14 years total. But I, I ended up catching another charge and they terminated my probation. Okay, okay. I know we're we're starting to move into that point. Tell us. You've alluded to it, but tell us the story how you came into connection, into relationship with God through Christ. Well, I've always I've always been a believer, you know what I mean? I've I've always believed in God. There's just times where I've turned my back on him because like I felt ashamed. You know, like, how am I going to talk to somebody that knows everything I'm doing? I can't hide it from him. You know, there, <laughs> no, there ain't no, no hiding no, it from him. That's so right. I just turn my head around, put my head down, you know what I mean? He'll ignore me. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it was, I had caught in a charge in Rochester early springish because it was still cold when I was riding my motorcycle. And it was two weeks after that, um, one of my, my best friend, uh, Dakota, he won't mind me putting his name out here, but my best friend, Dakota, we went to school uh, with each other and everything, known him for 20 plus years. Um, me and him used to get high together and he just up and disappeared uh, for a while. And he ended up blocking me on Facebook and everything, which totally understandable. You know, he was, he was in the process of getting sober and at that point, I was not. Okay. And uh, it was, like I said, it was probably about two weeks after I had gotten this last charges. Um, he unblocks me. Uh, backtrack here for a minute. He had hit me up before he had blocked me. He had hit me up and he had told me about this program in Marion, uh, the Hope House. And he was like, bro, he says, it's a life changer. He says, come here. I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. I said, living in a bunch of, or living in a house with a bunch of dudes again. I said, I just, I don't know. So I don't know about that. And he was like, well, when you're ready, just let me know. And it wasn't shortly after that he had ended up blocking me, which he had all rights to. You know, I'd have, if I tables were turned, I would have blocked him too. Um, you know, he was probably the best friend he could be at that point by doing that. He he didn't realize it, but he planted a seed and then he cut off ties from me, which ultimately caused that seed 
to start sprouting. Yes. Because you know, my curiosity kicked up. You know, what? how is he going to block me? And then my mind starts thinking, well, maybe this really is a life changer. So it was two weeks after uh, I'd caught these charges down in Rochester. Uh, he unblocks me. And I sent him a message and I said, hey, bro. I said, it's time. I said, I'm ready. I said, who do I get a hold of? And he sent me uh, Tia's number. And it, it's wild how it works out because I had called. She had, she had sent me a message because she was on vacation at the time. She had sent me a message and said, get a hold of these uh, treatment facilities. And she sent me four of them. And I was on the last one that she sent me, which was Hickory Treatment uh, Facility out of Indy. And I was on that very last uh, phone call with them. The other ones, they were full, wouldn't have anything open for weeks. And I'm the type, if I don't do it and I don't do it now, I'm going to talk myself out of it. Yep. Because I'd done it several different times before that. Oh, it's okay. I can wait another, you know, another week and be another week. Procrastination. Bad. And it makes for a bad destination. hundred percent. hundred percent. Well, I'd gotten uh, started with a, uh, oh, a, I can't remember the word of it. Anyways, uh, I got a hold of Hickory. They started uh, doing an assessment. There we go. An assessment on me. And I told them, you know, what my addiction problems were, what my current state was. And uh, she says, well, hold on just a second. She put me on hold. She came back, I think it was like two minutes later. And she says, can you be here at 8 o'clock in the morning? What? <laughs> she says, uh, we just had a bed open up. She says, uh, here in the indie uh, place, she says, if if you're serious, she says, that's your bed. And I said, okay, I'll be there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, so in the matter of about a 12-hour time span, I was on my way to rehab. That in and of itself is step God to see it happen that quickly. A hundred percent. Like from, it just. From the time you submitted to the thought of doing it to getting there. That's a quick turnaround. Very quick. Considering over the past 18 months, seeing people trying to do the same thing, taking them three, four days, maybe even a week or two to get a bed to be open for them to be able to even get in. Mine was just like now. Yeah. Well, there's God. There's step number 100%. one. Okay. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Tell us how that progressed on. Uh, I was, I was, I was a fence rider. You know what I mean? When I first got into uh, rehab, I didn't know, you know, it's like, what am I doing? I don't know if I can do this, which looking back at it now, I know that that was, that was the enemy telling me these things. So, you know, he was feeding off my, my newly recovery, battling with the old me, trying to turn into a new me. And he was feeding off that and he was telling bad things in my ears, you know, you're not going to be able to complete this. You're not going to be able to go nowhere. You're going to be the same person that you always were. Well, I'm a sitting here a hundred percent, at ten hundred percent better than I ever was at my, I, I, it's hard to explain. Like 
So earlier you showed me a tattoo you just recently got. Yes. That shows the date where you your for your clean date. What is yes. that date again? It's uh six twenty twenty one. I was thinking six twenty of twenty one. June twentieth, twenty one. So you've been clean and sober from all alcohol and drugs? Absolutely. Incredible. How have you managed that? What has it been like? Has there been a strong temptation, a pull? Has that tried to, you know, has it tried to suck you back in that whirlpool? There's been a, a couple times where I was like, uh, okay, this is kind of bad, like with the craving-wise. But for the majority of this time, like those cravings were early on in my recovery, like the first two or three months. But after that, I have nothing. I don't want it no more. I don't desire it anymore. Well, you tell the enemy to flee. You tell him no. Yep. You tell him to flee. You've Every time. Flee, all right? You've got a great Every time. power working for you and in you. So uh, you've said it more than once. Life is amazing at this time. It Define is. Define amazing. What is the difference in the Greg of today and Greg of four years ago, five years ago. I'm not miserable anymore. I'm not having to fake a happiness. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, life life has life moments. You know what I mean? It all can't be, you know, roses all, and peaches and all. We but, all have flat tires, okay? Exactly. One way or the other. Okay, go ahead. But, but from back five years ago to now, I can actually walk around with a smile on my face and not a fake one, not a mask over like that mask is off and who you see that happiness you see, it's real. What would you tell the Greg five years ago? What would you say to him? If you could sit across the desk here, the counter, what would you say to him? Pour your head out of your butt. And look where life can actually get you to and just stop being stupid. Like there's more to life than just snorting it up your nose or putting it into your arms. You know, like life is great. It doesn't have to be miserable. It doesn't have to be a struggle. Is that the same advice you would give to somebody else that's you know, was is where is now where you were I tend to give other people better advice than I give myself <laughs> if that makes any sense yes, at all yes, yes. like I am really good at giving other people really good advice but when it comes to myself it's like eh, yeah well, that's good advice it's just you're not willing to follow it probably right that's my stubbornness yeah that'll come out too yeah yeah so the name of our podcast is faith in your recovery, what does that mean to you? I've got to have faith to be able to recover. You know what I mean? Like it, without God, I would not be here today. You know, there, then I have several moments looking back through my life where God was there to get me to this moment where I am today. Did you ever think you would be sharing your, that you would have a story worthy of sharing with others and hope that it would give them hope? Did you ever see yourself at that point? No, because honestly, I didn't ever see myself living to this point. 
So why would there have been a story, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you certainly do, and you certainly have, and we're glad that you've shared with us today. Any last words of advice, help, or, you know, anything you'd like to say? Don't ever give up. You know, there's there's a point in life where it just seems like there's there's never going to be the light at the end of the tunnel, but just keep on pushing through. Keep on breaking through that darkness, and eventually... Once you're willing to surrender yourself over to God and, you know, give it to his hands and know that he has your back, that light will start illuminating itself at the end of the tunnel and you'll be able to walk out of the darkness and you'll finally be able to see the light and be able to see the happiness that is waiting there for you. Amen. And that light at the end of the tunnel may appear small, but the closer you get, the bigger it gets. Absolutely. The brighter it shines. Take somebody along with you. Reach back. I'm not saying reach down unless they need a hand up. But reach back. Bring somebody else with you. and Follow somebody with your other hand. Let them reach to you. Together, we do recover. Get a hold of us. A podcast at ablbh.org. Let us know what you think. We're glad you've joined us today at Faith in Your Recovery. Keep sharing your story. Somebody needs to hear it. They need to know what forgiveness is about, what value, what worth, what you know, self-esteem is about. Make sure you share. Take care. Join us again. God bless. Thank you. <laughs>